Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're continuing the series, Romans part 2, looking at the section, second section of Romans. And if you don't have a Bible, we have scattered some around the building. They're under the chairs. You'll look down, you'll see a chair rack there. Grab one of those and open it up to page 943. Page 943 in the Black Bibles, Romans chapter 6. As we've been working through this section, we've seen some, some big stuff, particularly in chapter 6. Last week, we looked at the idea of union with Christ, how by faith, everything that Christ has is ours. We are one with him. We were united with him in death to sin, and we are now united with him in resurrection life, in resurrection power. So now Paul is continuing what he started last week. We're calling it this week, Under Grace. Under grace. So we saw um, a couple of weeks ago that there are basically two tribes. You can either be in the tribe that draws its power and descendancy from our original first parents, Adam and Eve, right? That's the tribe we're all born into. Or by faith, you can be in the tribe of Jesus, which is the tribe of grace, the tribe of resurrection power. So two tribal chiefs, Adam or Jesus. We saw last week Paul further unpacking what this looks like to be uh, one with Christ. And then now this week, he's going to talk about those two lives as two different kinds of slavery. So I want you to think about it uh, from this perspective. Imagine, if you will, that you are actually a slave, that you belong to someone else whom you serve. But, But imagine this, as horrible as that sounds, imagine that your master is so good and so generous and so kind that when the day comes that you have the opportunity to be free, you say, I want to continue to serve this master because this master was so good and so kind and so generous and this master gives me life and this master loves me and this master cares for me. It's hard for us to even imagine that. In Exodus chapter 21, there are actual laws set up for that sort of situation. I don't know how often that actually happened, but in Exodus chapter 21 in the Old Testament, it says that if a slave loves his master... They have this whole procedure, and he wants to stay with him. He wants to just be a part of his family. Then there was this procedure. They would pierce the slave's ear to clarify his status. You know, he's not a runaway slave, but he's someone who loves and wants to stay with his master. Now, it's hard for us to imagine because our own history is so clouded by a uniquely terrible form of slavery, race-based slavery in the history of our country, where we dehumanized people. And so we, we have a particularly grievous history in our country. A country that says it's so important for us to be free and not be slaves of anyone, and then we enslaved people based primarily on race. Uh, So we have a particularly grievous history that we want to confess and be honest about and say that was wrong and that was bad, and so that can maybe distract us from what Paul is talking about here, because Paul is saying there could be, it's possible, we can't imagine it because we're all sinners, but there could be a slave master that is so good It's so wonderful that he gives you more life than he takes. So as we read the text, I want you to think through it from that perspective that Paul is talking about an illustration here that's not really speaking directly to the particularly bad kind of slavery we had, but he's just talking about in general the concept of you can belong to one person, you can belong to another. We all belong to something. We all belong to someone, right? So let's let's read the text and, and see what Paul has to say here. We're going to read verses 14 through 23. So 14 was our last verse from last week. We're going to pick that up to kind of follow the train of thought here. So 6, 14 says, 
for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So the title for today, you're under grace. Grace is now your new master in Christ. So let's look at verse 15 and following. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time, at that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let me pray for us and we'll ask God to teach us what he has to say here. God, we we thank you for your word. Um, We recognize there are distractions, there are things um, that might make it harder for us to hear what you're saying. And so we we pray that your spirit would meet us here, that you would come, uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you'd give us hearts that are receptive to you, and that you would help us, Father. We know you're good. We trust you, Um, and so we pray that you'd meet us here now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this uh, text lays out some really interesting concepts, and and in general, I would say that the concept is that grace actually changes us, that when we're under grace as our new master, grace is good to us, and grace is a good master that we love and changes us for the good complex thing to understand, and so Paul's going to kind of pick it apart piece by piece. Uh, There's a friend of mine that pastors a church in Austin, and so I'm just going to give him credit. I kind of stole his outline because I thought it was helpful, and the first thing uh, that we see as we go through the text is this principle of control. We see a principle of control that kind of underlines everything. Uh, Another way of saying it would be we're all slaves of something or someone. We're all controlled by something. We're all mastered by something. Something has dominion in your life, to use the phrases that Paul has been using so far, right? Dominion, mastery, slavery. We're, we're all under something's control. Something is leading us. Something is ruling us. Now, as Americans, we like to tell ourselves it's us, that we are leading us. Of course, Paul spent a lot of times in Romans trying to lay out the framework that if you are in charge of you, it's not really you, it's sin. So just... Wrestle with that. Pray that the Lord would give you some insight because I know for some of you that's a, hard, that's a hard concept because you tend to think that you are good and always make right choices, right? I'm sad to say I'm a bearer of bad news. You don't always make good choices. You are not always the best master of you. Uh, the way the text sets it up is that basically we're either under sin or under grace. What's interesting is he says that being under the law is actually a variety of being under sin. And that's a particularly sneaky variety of being under sin, whereby we fool ourselves and say, look at me, I'm a great religious person that does everything right. We're still self-mastered, still sin-mastered, 
We're just lying about it and saying, look at me, I'm a law keeper. So Paul's going to unpack this for us. Looking at verse 14, again, that was the ending part from last week. Verse 14 said it this way, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. And it felt a little bit like it was coming out of left field. And so now he's going to unpack how being under law is an actual variety of being under sin. So last week he was talking about you're either under sin or under grace. This week he's going to be talking about still basically the same thing. You're either under sin or under grace, but being under law is a type of being under sin. Because uh, I heard this quote, Dallas Willard says that the law is the course of our gospel change, the course of our sanctification, the course of our holiness, right? It's the course, but it's not the source. I thought that was a really helpful way to, to think about it. So the law is the course for our sanctification and holiness, but it's not the source. Grace is the source. If you actually want to change, if you actually want to be more holy, you need to be mastered by God's grace, by his goodness, not necessarily the law itself. When you're mastered by God's grace and his kindness, then the law will start coming out in your life. You'll start doing good things because you're mastered by God's grace. So there's this principle of control. I grabbed a picture of uh, different operating systems. How many of you own some sort of computer, tablet, or phone that has an operating system? Raise your hand if you own some sort of electronic device, a little robot that you keep in your pocket. Okay. And they all have what's called an operating system. Now, I'm not going to go into details about this. Uh, I want to say because you wouldn't really understand, but really it's because I don't really understand and I don't want to embarrass myself, right? But there is, there is this operating system that controls every robot that we, in, that we use, right? Um, and so we are similar. We're not robots, we're not machines, we're not computers, but there's always something mastering us. There's always something controlling us. Most of you, if you're honest, have had moments where you did what you did not want to do. And Paul's going to talk about that in Romans 7. And those moments are often moments of clarity where you recognize, I just did what I did not want to do and maybe what I thought was mastering me is not mastering me. Maybe I'm not as in control of my life as I thought I was. So he says, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but you're under grace. Verse 15 says, what then? Are we to sin? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. This is kind of like the question... He asked at the beginning of chapter 6, if grace is growing and abounding in our life because of sin, should we then sin more so grace will abound more? No way. Same kind of concept here. Well, if we're not under law, so basically the question is this. If the law can't fix you, does that mean we hate the law? That's another way to say it, right? Or if grace is actually what changes people and grace is all about forgiveness and recognizing our failure to keep the law, then does that mean we should sin more? Does that mean we should not care about God's boundaries. and No, 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 no. Paul's saying, no, that's not how it works at all. Just understand that the law can't fix you and your own sinful heart can't fix you. You need something from the outside to fix you. What is that something from the outside? Well, that something as a thing, we call it grace. As a person, we call him Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Someone's got to control you. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Something controls you. What controls you? Is it your need to have control that controls you? Is it your need to be loved that controls you? 
Is it your need to be secure financially that controls you? Is it your need to have respect that controls you? Is it your need to have pleasure and comfort that controls you? What is it that controls you? The way Keller often talks about this is there's always a sin underneath the sin, right? When you see something happening in your life, when you see some sort of sin springing up, one way to attack it is just say, stop, right? And there's, there's merit in that, right? And I would say, right now as your pastor, if you're sinning, stop, okay? Just stop sinning. But a lot of us have found over the years that it's a lot easier to root it out, like when you're pulling weeds, there's one way to get a dandelion and that's just pop the top off, right? But you know you haven't really killed the dandelion, right? You've got to pull it out by the root. And sin is similar. When you understand the sin underneath the sin, when you understand the slave master that's driving you to sin, what is the control system? What's that principle that's operating and leading and mastering you underneath? That helps you to root it out. That helps you to keep giving yourself over to a good master that loves you instead of continuing to serve this evil master, this taskmaster that's driving you right now. So what's the sin beneath the sin? I think a way to, to figure this out, what your operating system is, what principle is controlling you, um, is to just kind of do a self-test of thinking like, when am I most angry? When do I get most angry? What are the triggers for that? When am I most sad? What are the triggers for that? What makes me most sad and despairing? What's the trigger for that? Uh, when do I feel the most in control? When do I feel like I've, I've got this, everything's working out? Or the opposite, when do I feel completely and utterly out of control, right? These are, these are just little clues. What are those things when, like I said earlier, you, you feel like, man, I just, I just did what I didn't want to do? What was the trigger? What led you there? What were you seeking? What were you wanting? And that's helpful, I think, to help us get under the surface and, and kind of begin to understand what's my operating system, what's the principle of control that I'm serving? What, what am I offering myself to as a slave? What are you a slave to? What are you a slave to? The next thing that Paul then talks about is the power of the teaching itself. There's real power in the gospel teaching, in the, the teaching of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And so he unpacks this in verse 19, no, verse 17 through 19. He says it this way, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So this is a really important distinction here, being obedient from the heart. Um, Any of you remember in the book of Matthew, there's a section called the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapter 5, 6, 7 in the book of Matthew. In that section of Matthew, Jesus is not contrasting the wild disobedient sinners with the good righteous lawkeeper people. You know what he's doing in that section? He's contrasting those who keep the law externally and non-authentically, the Pharisees, the religious people that didn't really love God, but were keeping the law to some degree. He's contrasting those people with the people who keep the law from the heart because they love God and love other people. So that's really interesting, again, showing that sometimes keeping the law in an external, religious, hypocritical way is just one more variety of being under sin. So don't think that your showing yourself as a law keeper can save you. Only Jesus can save you. So he says it this way here. There's this obedience from the heart 
to which you've been committed. You've been committed to this new teaching. The, the word committed is interesting. Um, have you ever heard the word committed used in context with like going to a mental hospital? Have you ever heard it used that way? That's more like what it means here, right? So it's not like I am really smart and I've read all the books. That's how I like to think about myself. Like I've compared all the religions in the world and I picked the best one, right? I mean, I did some work like that in college. I did compare and I did decide. But you know what? That was after this one religion captured me. I was committed to it. I was handed over to it like a slave. It grabbed hold of me. There's this power in the gospel. Our minds matter. Think through the teaching. Compare one teaching to another. But there's something about the power of this teaching that it grabs you. It changes you. There's something mystical there of how God's Holy Spirit works through the true teaching of the Word, the true teaching of the Scriptures and the Gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, that it just grabs you. It captures you. C.S. Lewis said when he was converted, he said he was converted kicking and screaming, right? Like he was dragged kicking and screaming. That was somewhat my experience as well. I don't know what your experience was like. Um, There's this great verse in John 6.44 where Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me, Jesus is saying, none of you can come to Jesus unless the Father draws you. And the word draw is kind of a nice, you know, we think of like drawing a bath or drawing a picture, but it's literally drag. It is like this word committed. It's like if you were to drag a prisoner into jail or you were to enslave someone. It's this grabbing hold of someone. And so there's a sense in which this teaching grabs a hold of us. We're, we're committed to it. And you know what it leads to? Not a pitiful life of, oh, poor me, I'm a slave that's being abused. A life of fullness and resurrection power and grace and love. So again, we can't, we just can't wrap our brains around this because we're so set because of our cultural standards, because of both our cultural value of independence as Americans and our cultural sin of slavery, we're getting hit from both sides. One of our greatest sins is, is race-based slavery. And one of our greatest values is independence and being your own boss. And so both our greatest cultural value and our greatest cultural sin works against us understanding this properly. Because what this is saying is you don't really want to be your own boss. You actually want to be a slave. But you don't want to be a slave to some horrible, sinful person. You want to be under the control of Jesus. And he has real power to change you. Real power. There's real power in this teaching, in this person. So I'm going to read verse 17 again. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, that's who you used to be. You were a slave to sin. You've now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18 says, And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. You've been slaves of righteousness. So it's interesting. He says it in two different ways. You're obedient from the heart. That sounds beautiful and great. And then he says you're a slave of righteousness. So if you have a hard time with slavery to Jesus or slavery to the gospel being feeling like a negative term, he gives you an optional term here. You can call it being committed Hand it over to the teaching, becoming obedient from the heart. That's the positive way of saying it. You're now obedient from the heart. You're not just obedient because you're trying to win God's affection. You're trying to trick him into blessing you. 
you're obedient from the heart because you actually love him. So you've been handed over to this teaching of God's grace. It's, it's, becoming, it's beginning to change you. So there is a, uh, a handing over, which is a picture of being thrown into jail, dragged into jail. It's also a picture of being dragged out of jail. I, I grabbed a picture here of a, of a jailbreak. I don't know if y'all have seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Great, great, uh, interesting, fascinating piece of literature. And there, you know, they, they break out, and then they get caught again, and then they break out again, and then they get caught again, and then they finally get pardoned in the end. And so there's kind of a lot of back and forth there. Um, and I think it's a pretty good example because these are kind of lovable idiots, right? And the scripture actually encourages us to see ourselves kind of that way. Like, yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing when I'm trying to break myself out. It doesn't go real well. I'm like a sheep that actually needs a shepherd. Because without a shepherd, I'm going to eat poison and walk off of cliffs, right? So I need a shepherd that's going to love me and lead me to still waters and good things and care for me and protect me. That's what the scripture tells me about myself. There's an interesting line from And Can It Be. It's an old hymn, And Can It Be. Um, And here's the, the line that I really like. It says, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's how the gospel is described. The gospel is described as, in a sense, being set free from our captor. We're now set free from being enslaved and enchained to sin. We no longer have to serve sin, and that's what Paul's trying to convince us of. You don't have to keep serving sin. You don't belong to sin anymore. Sin's not your master. Sin was a cruel taskmaster. You don't have to keep uh, serving sin anymore because now you're... Um, serving Jesus himself. And the point here I think that's important is there's real power in God's grace. There's real power in the teaching itself. There's real power in the word. So if you're, if you're struggling to live free, if you're struggling to continue living as a free person and instead you keep enslaving yourself back to sin, when Paul has clearly said, you don't have to do that anymore. Sin doesn't own you anymore. Sin doesn't master you anymore then I would say keep trusting in the power of Jesus to work through his word. There's real power of grace at work. There's real power of Jesus at work by his spirit through his word. His word really can change you. That's one of the things that we believe deeply here where we just crack open the Bible every week and just teach the Bible. Uh, And some people are like, well, that's not very entertaining. You need to do other things. But, But we actually believe that when you make the scripture clear, when you help people to hear the Bible, that that changes people. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about this idea of defending the Bible, right? Because there's a lot of people that are, you know, can you trust the Bible? It's weird. It has old things, you know, stuff about it that we don't really like. Spurgeon said defending the Bible didn't really make sense to him. He said it was kind of like trying to defend a lion. You don't really have to defend a lion, do you? You don't have to defend a lion. He says, what he sees his job as, as a preacher, is to let the lion out of its cage. You don't have to defend a lion, right? You just let the lion out of its cage. And that's a big part of what we try to do here with the songs that we sing, the groups that we have, with the, the preaching on Sunday. It's just, we're just trying to let the lion out of its cage. We're just trying to let people be exposed to the power of this teaching, to the power of who God is, what he has said about us and about the world, that, that we would be changed. There's real power in the teaching. So I would say, in your own life, 
yeah, gather with us so you can hear the word taught. Yeah, get in a small group so that you can wrestle with the scriptures in community with other people, but bring the word into your own life where there are verses that, that speak to you and crystallize for you just how good Jesus is. Write those verses down. Put those on your mirror. Make them the screensaver on your phone or on your computer. Put them on a card and put them in your pocket, but begin to wash yourself with the word. Begin to put yourself under the power of this teaching. You've been committed to it. You've been dragged into it, so now keep giving yourself over to it, trusting the goodness of this new master that leads you and wants to give you life. The word will, will change you. Trust the word to change you. It's, it's kind of like an act of faith. You just say, well, I trust my master. He's good. He says his word will change me, so I'm going to continue to give myself over to the word. I'm going to keep trying to learn it. I'm going to keep trying to soak myself in it. Then finally, we see the process here of sanctification. It's a, it's a process. Paul continually, we talked about this idea last week, contrasts the indicative and the imperative. And the imperative, which is what you should do, is based on the indicative, which is what God has done. And so those things are always swirling around in the scriptures. You can always see them working in tandem. And so you can read a scripture by itself where God just says, do this. And you can read some scriptures by themselves where God just says, this has been done. But the reality is the process in our life is those are always working together because Jesus has saved you, continue to live in that new way. Because Jesus has set you free, then live as a free person. Because you've been committed to this teaching, continue to be obedient from the heart, giving yourself over to the teaching you've been given over to. And so it's this process that's always going, it's always working, it's always cycling back around. And that's a very important key to your spiritual growth is to continue to give yourself over to what God has said is true. I've done this, therefore you do this. I've forgiven you, therefore you forgive other people. I've given you everything, therefore you be generous with what you have. I've been patient with you, therefore you should be patient with the crazy people around you, right? So there's always this, this back and forth, this cycle, what we would call the process of sanctification. The word sanctification literally means being made holy. So you can hear kind of the sound there of saint. This is sanctification is what the word is. A saint is someone who's holy. If you come from a particular religious background, you might think that saints are only the super holy. That's not how the Bible uses the word. The Bible uses the word that every single one of you that have found forgiveness in Jesus, you are a saint. So you're made a saint once and for all. You're made holy. You're set aside. Holy just means you, you have a special purpose. God's, God's doing stuff in your life. You're made a saint by faith in Jesus. And then there's an ongoing process of sanctification. Sanctification. You're being made more and more of a saint. You're being made holy. You're being set aside more in this process of giving yourself over to Jesus. So you've been given over to Jesus, therefore give yourself over to Jesus. You've been made a saint, therefore continue in the process of sanctification. Okay? So let's look at verse 19. He says it this way in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So here Paul gives us a little wiggle room if we're squirming over the slavery language, right? He's like, okay, I'm just using this illustration because you're people and you need some sort of illustration, okay? You have some natural human limitations. Because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members, your body parts, your physicalness, 
Present your body as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So he's saying, okay, I'm just using this as an illustration, right? Because it, it all starts to break down, right? We can't imagine a slave master so good that we'd want to live with the slave master forever. So that's hard for us to imagine. It's a, it's, it's a hypothetical concept. But he's saying, just as you all gave yourselves over to sin, and you just kept giving yourself by process to the slave master of sin and evil, in the same way, give yourself over to righteousness. It's a process that you keep doing. You're going to have to wake up tomorrow and make a decision. I think Jesus has saved me, so because Jesus has saved me, I'm going to act like I'm saved. I think God has loved me, and because God has loved me, I'm going to continue this process of loving him and loving others. It's a choice you make every, every day to give your body over to what God has already done to you. Verse 20 says it this way. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So I'm saying there's two different roads you can go on. And again, that's part of where he was last week, part of where he was the week before Two different roads. There's the, the road of sin. There's the road of, of life. Give yourself over to life. Give yourself over to sanctification, to this process of being made more holy. And he goes on and he says, there's two different kinds of fruit, right? He ends in verse 23, which is a, f- a famous verse. I would encourage you, if you're looking for a way to just memorize how to talk to people about the good news, the gospel of Jesus, this is one of the best verses you can memorize. Because it sums it up really, really well in one short little verse. So Romans 6, 23 says it this way. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's two options. There's two options. One leads to death. One leads to life. One is kind of our natural state. And one is this gift of grace. One is something we earn And one is something we didn't earn. Jesus earned for us. So there's this great contrast there. Really just these few key simple words summarizes everything that Jesus gave us by dying on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, and giving us his righteousness. And if you memorize this verse, it would be really fruitful in helping you to kind of have a a mental peg to hang things on to say, okay, this this is what God has done for me. I was walking in sin, and what I earned from my sin, the wages, the payment from punching that time clock of sin and being my own boss, I, I deserve death, separation from God, spiritual death. But there's this gift. There's this gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the two options. I want to back up a little bit, and as we think through the process of sanctification, Paul says, think about the fruit that was produced in your life. Think about the fruit. Now, that's hard for us to think through because we're very much industrial age people, technology age people. We tend to think in terms of machines more than agriculture and fruit. And I've really been convicted of this lately as I've been praying uh, just about my own spiritual growth, but also the health of our church. I heard an interview the other day where someone was talking about how churches often and businesses often think about building a machine, building a system. This is what it's going to take for our system to be healthy. And we think about it like some kind of assembly line. I I grabbed a picture here. Uh, Ford was famous for building one of the first assembly lines and the mass production of cars. 
way back when. And this is just kind of a normal thing that businesses do now. Factories build assembly lines. Uh, We come up with mechanical systems to produce results. But that's not how the spiritual life works. You can't build a machine to get spiritually healthy. It's not like that. It's not like if you have just the right teaching and tweak your spiritual life just the right way and and oil this joint and put a new belt in here, then you're just going to produce spiritual health, right? It's more of an agricultural picture. It's more of a garden picture that God gives us again and again. How does that work? How does gardening work? Well, I don't really know, and most of you don't know either, but I'll give you some brief, some brief ideas here. In a garden, there are certain things you should and shouldn't do, right? You've got to plant, you've got to water, you've got to weed the garden, it's got to have sunlight, depending on the kind of plant, it's got to have the right seasons, which is a problem for us here because we don't have seasons. Um, so it's got to have the right amount of sun, but not too much sun, right? It depends on the plant. There are rules, there are systems, there are things you have to do, but then what do you do? After you've done everything right, what do you do? You wait. You pray. That doesn't really fit our modern mechanical way of doing life. God calls us to work real hard and pray and wait and be patient and ask him to effect change. The process of sanctification requires you working requires you giving yourself over because God gave you over to himself. God saved you out of sin, therefore you are to give yourself over to righteousness. There is work. There's, there's real stuff we're called on to do. And then we're also called to pray and be patient and say, God, grow me. God, will you help me to grow? God, will you give spiritual fruit? As we're pouring into other people's lives, same thing. We pour into people's lives. We encourage them in the word. We, we love them. We listen to them. We walk beside them. We serve them. And then what do we do? We, we pray and we wait. We're not really in control of this whole process. There are definitely things to do, and there's definitely waiting and praying that has to take place. So Paul here talks about giving ourselves over to the process by offering our body, offering our members So are you presenting your members, your body parts? Look at verse 19 again. I'm speaking in human terms because your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So now knowing that it's not a perfect machine, knowing that it's not like if you do just the exact right thing, you will immediately get exactly the right fruit, knowing that God's ultimately in control of this process and you have to pray and be patient and ask him to help you to grow, and knowing that he started the process, right? So he starts the process, he ends the process, but he still wants you to give your body over to the process. What are the parts of your body you need to offer to the process, to sanctification? What do you need to do with your eyes? I just saw a quote the other day about how common more and more device addiction is becoming. Uh, they've done research now that dopamine is released, um, and dopamine is this kind of like hormone chemical in your brain that makes you feel good, right? And so we, we have that release when we enjoy pleasure, when we uh, get drunk, or when we exercise. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do that release this little pleasure chemical, and we're, we're starting to recognize now that looking at your phone all the time or spending a lot of time on the internet is just like being a drunk, basically. 
It's an addiction. It's a chemical addiction. It's releasing things in your head, and it's an addiction. So I would say, what are you doing with your eyes and your hands? What are you offering your body to? Are you capable of fasting from those things at all? Are you capable of breaking from your devices? Are you utterly under its power? Or are you just completely addicted and you've offered your body to it? They're just little things like that. Your mouth, how do you use your mouth? Do you use your mouth to sin, to tear people down, to criticize, to gossip? Or do you use your mouth to build people up and encourage others? What, what do you use your body for? Paul's saying we should use our body for righteousness. We should serve others. We should build others up. We should offer our bodies over to the Lord because we belong to him anyway. And we know that that's where life is going to be found. And the good fruit is going to be produced when we offer ourselves to him. And there's going to be this bad fruit of death and brokenness. And again, if you're enslaved in sin, one of the things you need to recognize is it's killing me. The dopamine might be being released that in the short term makes me feel like this is great but you're missing out on the, on the long-term life that God has for you. He has better things for you. God is more committed to your joy than you are. He's a better master than you are. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to us here in this text. What are next steps that God is asking you to take to offer yourself, to present your body to him because he's given himself for you? So I want to end again with the motivation of being under grace, seeing Jesus as the perfect master. I want to go to Philippians 2. This word slave, as I said, is a, is a tripping word for us. It's a difficult word. One, because as Americans, we so value independence. We always think we're our own best master, which the scripture argues against. And then again, because of just the history of sin in our own country, of, a, of abusing others, of race-based slavery. So let's look at the model of Jesus the slavery model of Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul's saying, these are the things we should do. We should be nice, right? As I said earlier, sometimes it's not enough to just say, stop being naughty, be nice. We need motivation. So not just what should we do, but why. Why should we do it? And and Paul gives it here. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's that same word, slave. By taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The message here is that God loves you so much that he gave himself for you as a slave. 
And so when he asks you to offer yourself as a slave to him, the only good master in the universe, he's doing this after having already given himself over as a slave. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but he let go of that, and he was humbled. He gave up everything for for you and for me. He died on the cross to take our sins. He rose from the dead to give us resurrection power. So in response, we can trust that he's good and give ourselves over to him and live freely by living under grace. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us so much. You gave yourself for us. You saved us. You rescued us. And God, we wrestle with, with what this means to, to be our own boss versus being under your control and under your power and under your grace. But when we're honest, we can recognize that being our own boss has not really worked out that well. And so God, I pray that you would help us to recognize the grace that you have for us in Jesus that we would day by day give ourselves over to you because by your grace we've been given over. We've been set free from sin, given over to grace. So God, help us to recognize that and help us to live that out. As you said in Philippians, only let us live up to what we have already attained in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would like someone to pray,